0: me a go-no-go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I
1: was going to say something that was not true.
0: I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch.
1: Alright everybody, welcome back to the Almost Sideways Podcast. This is episode 49 of the Almost Sideways Podcast, which I can tell already this is probably going to be one of my least favorite episodes. Uh, we always number our episodes by Roman numerals, and the only other thing that numbers by Roman numerals is the Super Bowl, and Super Bowl 49 was a bad experience. Uh, yeah, Malcolm mm-hmm. Butler, how dare you? So I, I already am hating this episode. How about you, Todd?
0: Well, now that you mention it, yeah, that really <laughs> sucks.
1: <laughs> See, it's it's going downhill before we even start this thing. Uh, I, I'm your host, Terry Plucknett of the Almost Cyrus Podcast. That was Todd Plucknett, my brother. He's along for the ride, along with Zach Saltz. Zach, you probably have a very different recollection of that. I believe you did a victory lap around your block. Uh,
2: yeah, we're we're not going to talk about that. That's re- <laughs> we're just going to have a little revisionist history here. I, it was a tragic day. <laughs> You know, poor, poor Russell Wilson. You know, 49 also makes you think of one of the worst best picture winners of all time, All the King's Men. So it's just a bad number all around.
0: And also the rival of the Seahawks.
2: Yeah. It's just, it's terrible. Yes.
1: However, also 49 up, which is not not a bad thing. So.
2: That's true. That's That's a great we're, movie.
1: We're going to have to do like a deep dive of the up series at some point. Like, when 63 Up comes out, we should do that. That'd be fun. Yeah, don't you
2: think, Todd? Because you've seen all those movies?
0: Yeah, I haven't seen any of them. Uh,
2: it's, so. If, it's so rare for me and Terry to talk about a truly great movie that Todd hasn't seen.
0: If, if by, you, by, you have, and by movie, you mean... Well,
2: series of movies, movies? I guess. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. If you have no idea what we're talking about, look up the Up series by Michael Apted. Uh, yeah, they come out with a new one every seven years. They're pretty awesome. Anyways, uh, let's get in a little bit to what we're doing here first, uh, Zach, what are you drinking?
2: I'm drinking some out of uh, the wonderful People's Republic of Lawrence, Kansas, uh, Free State Copperhead beer, which I believe I drank on the last podcast. I've been uh, very busy lately, so uh, yeah, the beer hasn't been uh, digested as quickly as possible, but uh, I hope to change that today.
0: Okay, all right. Todd, what do you got? uh from the old soldier distillery in tacoma washington uh which we have visited in the past yeah uh, i have their brand new bourbon santos which is raisin flavored whiskey and oh, i'm here to tell you that's what i call sharp like it is like really smooth I mean, it's like the raisin flavor is not like uh overpowering it's not like a flavored whiskey like it's like more of like an essence it's like super smooth it's amazing and i might have to have another glass so so did you go back to the distillery and do another tasting? Uh, well, we didn't do another tasting. Was a tasting last night? Uh, well, not last night, but I, the, we we, went, we did go there because uh, it was like right down the street from where we were watching Impractical Jokers Live and also right next door to the new uh, tattoo shop where the guy who gave me my uh, awesome Ace of Spades tattoo uh, yeah, it's this new shop. It's right next door to the distillery, so like, oh, we might as well pop ourselves in, and we uh, bought bought a couple bottles.
1: <laughs> nice, nice. All right, well, uh, for me, this uh, this podcast I'm enjoying out of Bend, Oregon, the Worthy Brewing Company. I've had some of their beer before. Uh, this is the Secret Spot Pacific Pale Ale. It's uh, it's pretty good. It's got hints of uh, what was it? Hints of mango and grapefruit. So, there you go. Also, uh, throughout the podcast, I will be, uh, if you hear some crunching noises, I went to our our local farmer's market this morning and got uh, some uh, whiskey-glazed Oregon hazelnuts. So, uh, yeah, these these things are awesome right here. So, there you go.
2: You know, you would think that on a deep dive of A Beautiful Mind, all of us would be drinking beer, but Todd, I I, guess... I
1: have respect for beer. Todd
2: didn't get the memo. (laughs) He didn't.
1: However, he is drinking Old Soldier.
2: So I'm not a soldier! I'm not a soldier.
1: I'm not a soldier! This is not a mission! (laughs) (laughs) You're not real! Okay, anyways. (laughs) Uh, We're going to get into that in a little bit, because yes, we are talking about A Beautiful Mind uh, as our deep dive today. But first, we're going to look at some of the movies that we've uh, been watching recently, and just give, uh, give some reviews of those. And so I'm gonna go to Zach first. Zach, what have you you been watching?
2: All right, well, this week I watched uh, Todd's number one movie of 2019 so far, I believe it's still so far, which is uh, Dragged Across Concrete, which he talked about a few episodes ago. Um, Todd later told me that he was very skeptical whether I'd like it or not, and he thought I would give it one and a half stars. Um, I liked it actually quite a bit more than that. It's not my number one movie of the year like Todd, but uh, I thought it was pretty fun to watch. It's uh, for those of you not familiar with it, it's, it's uh, the story of uh, two uh, cops who are suspended at the beginning of the movie, and uh, they basically go on this stakeout um, where they find these robbers who have robbed a bank and taken some gold, and it's sort of like a It feels like a canon 1980s movie. I texted Todd after watching it that this movie should have been made in 1980 and starred Roy Scheider and uh, Eric Roberts and Larry Fishburne. Um, It it has a great kind of throwback feel to it, and... uh, It's, although I think actually it plays it pretty seriously throughout the film. It's not really an ironic kind of wink at the camera type thing. It's a pretty good movie, has definitely some currents of like racism and xenophobia throughout that I I don't know why was kind of thrown in there. I guess it's just because maybe the Mel Gibson association makes me feel uncomfortable with it. But uh, it's actually a pretty good movie, pretty entertaining. Um, For a movie that's two hours and 40 minutes, it moved along pretty pretty nicely, so uh, a solid three stars for me. Good choice, Todd.
0: Thank you. I uh, I'm glad you actually liked it. Like uh, like I said, it, it is totally the, the closest thing to Breaking Bad that I've seen in a movie. Like there there's a scene where they're just sitting there in a car, and, uh, uh where Vince Vaughn is eating a sandwich for like 50 minutes, and it's like it is like completely riveting, and that, is, that totally reminds me of like uh like young Mike Ehrman Trout on a stakeout or something. It, it's kind of awesome.
2: Yeah, there's this, run, this funny running joke in the movie, too, about how Mel Gibson gives, like, percentage probabilities to everything. Like, 10% chance he takes a left here. 20% chance we make it out of alive if uh, you make the phone call. You know, it's, it's, it's a pretty funny running gag throughout. I, I, I did that for the next three days after seeing that movie, so it rubbed off.
1: <laughs> nice. I, I, have a, I have a sneaking suspicion that's going to be a part of our next Vegas trip. Is that giving percentages on everything that
2: we do? I think that's a 70% chance likelihood.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Okay, I have not seen that one yet. I'll, I'll need to catch that one. Um, Todd, what uh, what have you
0: watched? Uh, so I caught uh, the movie that came out last weekend uh, called Madness in the Method, directed by the one and only Jason Mewes. Uh, and it is the directorial debut for Muse, and you can actually tell, because he has like a really interesting visual style, like unlike anything that his buddy and always collaborator Kevin Smith has. Uh, it actually is, is really well put together, and it, it's interesting to watch, uh, and, he's, and he actually gives a really good performance as well. He plays himself, fresh out of rehab, looking to like try to move on from the, the snoochie-boochies of Jay and Silent Bob and actually be taken seriously as an actor and so he goes to kevin smith who plays himself also and he says you need to become a method actor so i'm gonna introduce you to this book that matt damon told me about but there's only one copy on, on the planet and he ends up getting the copy because the guy's a big fan or whatever and then after once he gets the copy of the book like it's just like this like quick and bizarre descent into madness and it's there's like some brutal violence and a lot of laughs it, um it, it's it is really dark it's like muse doing his version of like uh that matt leblanc series episodes where it's but like showing like how he wants to stop being typecast but it's like really subversive violence and angry at the same time but it, it is really original it kind of reminded me of like a bobcat goldthwaite movie or something like that there's some awesome cameos in this that you got a randomly uh, dean kane and terry hatcher uh super r- union which which is pretty cool. You got Vinnie Jones and Danny Trejo, both playing themselves, who are awesome. You got Gina Carano. Of course, you got Brian O'Halloran and the final screen performance of Stan Lee. But Jason Mewes particularly is really good and Kevin Smith does something really interesting. I never really took him seriously as an actor, but he is actually pretty spectacular in this movie. Uh, it, it goes way further than you would expect and it's, it's, I, it's kind of a shame that it didn't get more of a release last weekend. I mean, I, I actually watched it um, on demand. They had to, had to order it but it it's uh it it, it's an interesting movie i i i was pleasantly surprised because the trailer looked kind of trashy but it is way different it's not just like a party movie like you expect from Muse. it's uh it's kind of interesting because like jeff anderson had his movie come out too which is actually pretty good too called now you know it's like who would have thought that kevin smith's like crew of stoners would have actually become like a directing tree and i don't know i really like this movie i gave it three stars
1: very nice, very nice.
0: I have not even heard of that movie,
1: but there is a, isn't there a Jay and Silent Bob sequel coming out soon?
0: Yeah, it's yeah Jay and Silent Bob reboot comes out like October, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan. I saw I've seen Kevin Smith twice uh, in comedy shows. I've seen Muse twice in comedy shows. That they're like uh, low key like my heroes.
1: <laughs> well, not so low key anymore. <laughs> no,
0: no. Everybody knows.
2: Secret's out.
1: No, everybody knows. <clears throat> All right. Well, the the movie I'm gonna review is uh, one that I actually wrote a re- a review for on our blog. Um, yes, there was a new post on our blog. If you regularly check it, you you're wasting your time. But there is a new post, and it is my review of the farewell. So you can find our blog almostsideways.blogspot.com, or go to almostsideways.com. There's a link for it there. Uh, and and I really really love this movie. It's one of the critical darlings of the summer. It was one of the big surprise hits coming out of uh, coming out of Sundance. It's written and directed by Lulu Wang, and this is a story that's very personal to her. Is it's really the story of a of a time in her life, where um, she it tells the story of a a Chinese American family, um, and uh, and their the daughter played by Aquafina, who's the Lulu Wang part um is going through this uh this complicated issue of her she finds out her grandmother in china is dying but the family has decided not to tell her that she's dying uh to try and spare her the grief of of that and and everything that goes along with it and hopefully prolong her life because she wouldn't be so depressed that she's dying that she dies sooner than she actually would and so they they throw this sham of a wedding for her cousin so that everyone can come back and see her one last time before she dies and um and at the the whole time billy who's aquafina's character is having this this insane complex of do i tell her do i not tell her uh why are we protecting her from this and uh it's just a fascinating movie um, I, I think I said in my review that it is, it is heartwarming and heartbreaking all at the same time. Aquafina shows she's so much more than a, than a comedy, uh, comedy actress. I could see her potentially getting uh, looks at uh, an Oscar nomination, which would be awesome. However, the, the scene stealer in the movie is a woman who plays the grandmother, and her name is uh Xuzen Zhao. Zhao who, uh, is actually making her acting debut in this. And, uh, she is awesome. She's the best part of the movie. She steals every scene she's in. Um, it's, it's a heartwarming story. Like I said, heartwarming and heartbreaking. It, you, I loved every minute of it. I'm giving it three and a half stars. Uh, and it's one of those that if it wasn't based on a true story, it'd be too remarkable to say that it's true or to say that to, yeah. And, uh, yeah i i loved it i loved it and uh i think it's one that everyone should go out and see if it's anywhere near you go see it uh because it is totally worth the watch and it's one of those small movies that the more people that go out to see it the more it gets it gets seen too the more money it makes the more it gets out there so if you haven't seen it go see the farewell have any of you guys seen it yet
2: no not yet i have
0: not i was i was actually considering seeing that for this podcast, but. Uh... I decided to stay home.
2: Go with your heroes instead.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. Watch Madness and the Method. When I realized that it was actually on, on demand.
1: <laughs> well, uh, we'll definitely go go check it out because it, it is it is worth the watch. Okay, so there are our, uh, our recommendations for you guys to go check out. We've got one in theaters, one on demand, actually probably a couple on demand. So you can find these movies uh, in a variety of different places okay let's get into our deep dive and for this uh podcast we are doing a deep dive of the 2001 best picture winner a beautiful mind universal
0: pictures dreamworks pictures and imagine entertainment present you have to help me one man's journey to the greatest discovery of all perhaps it is good to have a beautiful mind but an even greater gift is
1: to discover a beautiful heart,
0: a beautiful mind.
1: Uh, this is like our third like best picture winner in a row for our, our deep dives, isn't it?
0: Yeah, sounds right. Yeah,
1: and that, and this is, We're going through a phase here of best picture winners, I guess. So uh, we always uh, start out our deep dives with some trivia. Um, before we give any answers away in our discussion of the movie so Todd you are hosting trivia this time correct correct okay so what are we doing
0: uh we're gonna do our normal deep dive trivia so one person is going to go at a time so I think last time I had Terry go off so Zach is gonna go off right now
2: sounds good all right
0: Okay, Terry.
1: Alright, okay. I, uh, I, I had my, my Rocketman references already again, and I don't get to use them. Bummer.
0: Yeah, he did He did unplug. Okay, yeah. so we have <laughs> 11 questions for a possible 19 points. Uh, these should be fairly easy, I think. I expect you guys to probably get at least 14 out of 19 points. Uh, oh, wow, okay. Hit. Okay, number one. In what state was... Nash born, West Virginia. That's correct. Mark these down. He's the
1: West Virginia genius.
0: Yes, he is. Okay. Uh, what is Charles's drink of choice?
1: Oh, Charles's drink of choice. Ah, oh, crumb. Mm.
0: Bourbon? That's wrong. It's wrong. Uh, it's uh, Johnny Walker. Oh, also, God. The who, uh, yes, I would have accepted yes, yes. Scotch. <laughs> but
1: yeah, the, I mean, the, oh, man. Yeah, because the, uh, the car that hit me. I know the driver was Johnny Walker.
0: <sighs> okay. Yeah. Uh, what is the Minnesota city that Nash marks on the map in his first big decoding session for the Department of Defense? Mmm. <sighs>
1: It's like uh, oh oh god! It's 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 like something prairie. Um, oh, and it's alliterative. Um. Um pond prairie i don't know prairie
0: portage
1: Prairie portage dang
0: it you're on the right track i I had yeah again i don't
1: miss by much
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh what are the shapes that nash maps out in the stars
1: an umbrella and an octopus
0: that is both correct okay uh for two points what are the publications that nash is studying and trying to decode Newsweek. That's correct.
1: And Time. That is
0: incorrect. It was Life. Uh, Ah. Okay, for three points. Same thing. (laughs) (laughs) What are the colleges that are in the movie? Princeton. Correct. MIT. Correct.
1: And there's a third one. Well, his son goes to Harvard. That's not what you're talking about, though. Is it?
0: it I mean, it, it, if, if, if a college that's shown in the movie.
1: That's and it, shown. Okay. That is not shown in the movie, I don't think. Um,
0: whatever, I'll just give it to you. Harvard's Uncle the Harvard. answer. Harvard, yeah. yeah. He, uh, I think that's where he gets apprehended by...
1: Oh, okay,
0: okay, okay. Okay, Uh, for three points, what was Alicia feeling when Sol asked asked her how she's doing? For how many points? Three.
1: Um... Anger, I think, is one of them. That's Um, not correct. Well, fine. Um... Yeah. Mm. Regret I'm completely botching this.
0: That's wrong and too. Okay, yeah, if you didn't get Okay, okay. The answers were obligation, guilt over that. wanting to leave, and rage against God and John. Yeah, like I said, anger. <laughs> not my not my choice of words. Okay, um, what is Alicia's maiden name? Um, um, um
1: It's, uh, like Oh, it starts with an L Alicia, like Largo Largo Lard. It's not Largo Lardo Lard. Larde Lard
0: Yeah Okay <laughs> It started with an L though What book is Marcy holding on the steps when Nash is trying to ignore her? Green Eggs and Ham. That is correct. Uh, What hospital did Rosen take Nash to? St. Nicholas? MacArthur Psychiatric Hospital.
1: MacArthur.
0: Yeah. That was wrong. And for three points, what did Nash influence according to the end credits?
1: According to the end credits? Um,
0: oh. Gosh. You said you just watched this 45 minutes ago.
1: I, I did, I did, I did. Like, uh... It was, like... Mergers, I think, was not one of them.
0: That is not one of them.
1: Gosh. Okay. I'm just screwing up all over the place here. I, I I knew I know it wasn't antitrust cases because that was the one like in when he's told that he goes I I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought of that, and and then it wasn't in the final credits in the yeah in the post credit little blurb. All right. Um,
0: I don't think yeah, you're gonna get just, in there. Okay. Now am not gonna get in on it. Uh, global trade negotiations. National Labor Relations, and Breakthroughs in Evolutionary Biology. Yep, those were them. <laughs> the, the
1: Breakthroughs in Evolutionary Biology, that was the one that I remembered watching it and then I couldn't think of.
0: Alright, so maybe I was wrong. You only got eight points, so we'll bring Zach back. Oh gosh,
1: that was terrible.
0: I feel like this is almost like Family Feud right now. Like, Okay, <laughs> how Terry do? Uh, Terry did uh, less... Uh, less good than i I underwhelmed
1: let's put it that way
0: we have 11 questions for a possible 19 points and i expect you guys to probably get like 13 or 14 and terry did not get uh up to that mark i don't know if you i i I, I I barely got half that mark okay (laughs) so we'll see how the how this goes with you zach okay uh number one in what state was nash born west virginia correct Number two, what is Charles's drink of choice?
2: Ooh. Um, jo- Johnny Walker?
0: That's correct.
1: See, but how can you say that's his drink of choice? Because then later on, he talks about having respect for beer.
2: <laughs> Terry's complaining.
1: <laughs> no, Nash had respect for beer. Charles... But Charles is the one that got him to say, he goes... And respect for beer. And he goes, I have respect for beer. And oh, that's yeah. what he was saying. It,
2: is Charles the most alcoholic, imaginary character of all time?
1: <laughs> Could be. I think so. Maybe. Who imagines an alcoholic? I mean, see.
0: <laughs> all right. Number three. What is the Minnesota city that Nash marks on the map in his first big decoding session for the Department of Defense?
2: Prairie Portage. That's thank, thank you for not asking me the longitude and latitude. Couldn't tell you that.
0: <laughs> no, I, yeah, I would not. I wouldn't be that deranged. Okay. Uh, for two points, what are the shapes that Nash maps out in the stars?
2: An umbrella and an octopus.
0: Correct. For two points. Uh, two point question. What are the publications that Nash is studying and trying to decode?
2: Uh, so there's a total of, of two or yeah. Um, Life Magazine? That's correct. Uh, That was the one I didn't get. uh, the New York Times?
1: That's incorrect. It was Newsweek. Newsweek. I was a lot closer, because Life and Time are basically the same thing.
2: But, well, okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, number six. For three points, what are the colleges that are in the
2: movie? MIT. Correct. Princeton. Correct. Harvard.
0: Correct, and you have officially won. Sweet. Uh, what was Alicia feeling when Sol asks her how she's doing?
2: <laughs> um, the, the the medications are are working. Doesn't she say something like that?
0: Well, what is? She, how is she doing? Yeah. What, what is she feeling?
2: Um. Doesn't she say something like, mostly I just feel, I don't know, grateful or something? I don't know. I don't remember the line. I don't know. Okay.
0: Uh, she says, obligation. Obligation. Guilt, guilt over wanting to leave and rage against John and God.
2: Okay. Not Definitely not grateful.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> prob- Again, I was much closer. <laughs> Alright. You just said angry. <laughs> At least you said a feeling. <laughs> Anger, rage? I mean come on. And not the medications are working.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she said something like the medications are keeping the delusions down or something. I don't know. Are <laughs> okay. do you feeling like my
0: meds are working? <laughs> uh what is Alicia's maiden name? Lard. That's correct. I
2: don't uh, think it says work? that in the movie though, does it? She says it once. Okay.
0: Yeah, he like when she first says her name because he's like, uh, "Am I gonna get a name? Should I just keep calling you yeah. Miss?" And he says Miss, and she says Alicia Lard.
2: I only knew that because I looked her up on Wikipedia about an hour ago. so <laughs>
0: Okay. Uh, what book is Marcy holding on the steps when Nash is trying to ignore her?
2: Oh, no clue. Curious George. Like Forrest Gump.
0: Close. Green Eggs. See, I got name. that one. I got that one right away. Oh, that seems like no one idea. that you would have gotten. You said you always look at the marquee and stuff. Like I thought. Like, I oh, well, what book books? is she holding?
2: That's different <laughs> than than you know Rosemary's Baby playing across the street. You know, in Los Angeles. Okay.
0: Okay. What hospital did Rosen take Nash to?
2: MacArthur Psychiatric Hospital.
0: That is correct. Dude, you are just <laughs>
1: demolishing. You me watched right this now.
0: 45 minutes ago, Terry. <laughs> I know. Okay, and the last one for three points. What did Nash influence, according to the end credits?
2: Well, antitrust, is that one of them? I mean, he talks about that. No. Economic policy, I I don't know. I I don't know. I give up. I won.
0: They were global trade negotiations, national labor relations, and breakthroughs in evolutionary biology.
2: Oh, yeah. Can I
1: get a point for knowing that his answer was wrong? (laughs) Like I, I said in my answer It's not antitrust cases Because i he says it But it wasn't in the end credits
0: That's weird I, I always pay attention to those little blurbs In the end credits of movies Like th- Those are like some of the most interesting things In true stories to me so like I, I, <laughs> At least I didn't okay, ask the what the one, first and last words were
1: <laughs> The one detail that I went back To double check Because I was almost certain you were going to say it Is who is the father of modern economics And the answer is Adam Smith and I thought for sure
0: that was going to be one of your questions. Yeah, I also like thought who's the science at. You know, I also thought
2: you you going to ask like um which of the who's going to be the next Einstein and the next uh, Morse. I have those names in my head. I thought you were going to ask that. Well,
0: I was trying not to be predictable in these. I could have asked you like street <laughs> names and stuff and whatever, but uh, I don't think you guys anticipated any of those <laughs> questions. No. No. Well, Zach wins eleven to eight. Sweet. So, I don't know what that actually means for these uh, deep dives. So, <laughs> I don't know either. Maybe maybe some random movie nominated for a song will come up in the next like hour or something.
1: There we go. Yep. All right. Well, Zach, since you won, you got to tell us. Uh, for those that don't know, and if you don't know, stop the podcast, go watch the movie, and then come back. But tell uh, tell us. Basically, what is A Beautiful Mind all about and what's your experience with it?
2: All right. Well, A Beautiful Mind is based, shall we say loosely, on the life of John Forbes Nash Jr., who is a mathematician, uh, a prodigious mathematician, who came up with something called the Nash Equilibrium, which apparently had something to do with evolutionary biology, among other things, um, but and antitrust uh, legislation and uh, economic whatever. Yeah, just, you know, go back five minutes and you can hear what it impacted. Um, <laughs> But A Beautiful Mind doesn't really focus too much on his contributions to mathematics. It does a little bit, but it's more about how he battled schizophrenia. And uh, the movie was directed by Ron Howard and uh, stars Russell Crowe as John, John Nash. And, and what it does, which is pretty interesting, is that uh, we, we, he, the, the screenplay by Kiva Goldman really kind of puts us in the shoes of John Nash. These delusions that uh, he interacts with frequently, we are not aware that they are delusions until midway through the movie, so it kind of takes us, pulls a 180 midway through, Um, and uh, the movie basically covers about, what, maybe 40 years of his life, most of his adult life, um, as he battles uh, the, the, the very thing that gives him power, which is his beautiful mind, and uh, alongside his wife Alicia, played by Jennifer Connelly. Um, I love this movie. I've always loved this movie. I would consider it one of the 10 greatest movie experiences I ever had. Uh, that doesn't mean it's in my, in, a, in my top 10 of all time, but uh, when I saw this movie when I was 14 years old, it really, really impacted me. Uh, I didn't really know much about the movie going into it, and so when that revelation comes midway through, uh, it was a total, just total shock uh, to watch, and I I really loved the way that the the movie structured that. Um, I thought it was kind of a shame that Russell Crowe didn't win Best Actor, I'm sure we'll talk about that in this podcast, but uh, it's a movie that um, uh, won Best Picture, but I don't know if it's aged that well because later allegations sort of surfaced that this movie had a very kind of loose rendition of John, John Nash's life. Uh, sort of played fast and loose a little bit with history, but nonetheless, it's a really powerful movie, and uh, I still love it. Terry, I know you're a fan of this movie, too.
1: Yeah, I, this has been one of my all-time favorite movies ever since the first time I saw it, and for a similar reason as, as what you said. when you, uh, If you don't know anything about this movie going into it, that shock that comes in halfway through uh, is is amazing and I think it was on my list of like my top five spoiler alerts because if you know that that is coming, it ruins the mo- the movie experience of this so so much. It doesn't necessarily ruin the movie because I think it's still a great movie. Um, but yeah I, I I love this movie um, I, I I agree I was bummed when uh, Russell Crowe didn't win the uh, the Oscar for it. However, Jennifer Connelly does win the Oscar for it, which is also interesting. Um, but no, I think this is one of the movies I was thinking about as I was watching this. Um, more than almost any other movie I've seen, completely shifting tones and shifting styles halfway through. I mean, the the only thing I can think of that even comes close is something like From Dusk Till Dawn. When, when it... it it's one movie for half the movie then all of a sudden it turns into a completely different movie and everything you thought was one thing it turns out to be something else nothing quite does it quite like this i mean it starts out as this this love story with the suspense thriller of him him being run down by by secret spies and then you find out in the second half of the movie it was all in his head and and it it makes it just completely gripping because everything you thought was was real all of a sudden disappears and all you're left with is what he's trying to figure out. And, and I remember watching this and for the next, like after the doctors get him at that lecture for the next, like 10, 15 minutes, I was even looking at like, okay, who's actually right here. I mean, is is Christopher Plummer really a Russian spy or is this really all in his head? And it's not until his wife starts to figure it out that, that I really, uh, I really started to go along with it, but yeah, it's it is absolutely uh, an incredible uh, an incredible movie, and like you said, it plays a little fastness with history, but most uh, biopics do. Most biopics do, so it doesn't really matter. I don't think it doesn't take away from the value of the movie at all. I still love it. Did you see in Sorry, did you see oh, it in God. the
2: theater, Terry? Just out of curiosity. No,
1: okay. no, I didn't. I, I saw it. Um, I saw it at, at home. Uh, probably the first time Todd saw it, too. So, Todd, what did you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, it wasn't the first time you saw it. Like, I, you showed it to me probably a couple years after that. But, I mean, I I love this movie, too. I always credit it as the movie that, like, actually got me into watching serious movies. At the time, I, my favorite movie was uh, Gone in 60 Seconds. And, like, I watched this movie, and it combined a lot of things that I ended up really loving. Like, there's the suspense factor, but it's also really intelligent, which... It just kind of, like, changed the way I looked at movies. And... Uh, so it's always sort of held a special place in my heart But I hadn't seen it in years until uh, You know a few days ago so This will be an interesting conversation I, I, I think it gets a little uh, A little too sentimental in the third act But I mean, but it doesn't really matter I don't think because it I, I feel like everything leading up to it is just so So interesting and so Different than most any other movie That would have been made about this subject
1: That was something I realized too As I was watching it Um I can't remember the last time I watched it all the way through start to finish. It has been yeah, a really, really, either. really long time. I'll catch bits and pieces of it when it's on TV, but it's been a long time. There's little, There were little details. I was like, I don't remember that detail. But,
2: yeah. yeah so the reason I asked about the seeing it in the theater is because I remember watching the trailer for this movie in fall of 2001. And... If you watch the trailer, what's interesting about it is that it really emphasizes how John Nash was a math genius and and a a central figure in the history of mathematics. It doesn't so much talk about his schizophrenia. So when audiences saw the movie in in, December 2001, myself included, I thought it was going to be a movie about a math genius. I was not expecting this whole angle of mental illness and especially schizophrenia. So when Terry says that, you know, the movie pulls a 180, I mean, you got to take yourself back to 2001. People were absolutely shocked at that twist midway through. So uh, in part due to the marketing. But uh, I, would, I would second both of your sentiments though. It, it, it's, it's still uh, really good and, and watching it again Makes you notice details that you hadn't noticed before, just like with all all movies.
1: Okay, another question I thought Todd might have had on his uh, on his trivia game, uh, which will get us into talking about the Oscars. A Beautiful Mind is one of only two films to win Best Picture that start with the word A. What is the other one?
0: Uh. I didn't think this was going to stump you guys that much. (laughs) I mean, there's... uh, uh, A-N. That's not A. The word
2: A, yeah. So not an American in Paris. Nope. Uh. There's only
1: one other movie to start with the word A. That's one best picture. The answer is A Man for All Seasons. Ah. Man for All Seasons, yeah. That is totally a Terry movie. I haven't seen that one yet. I need to watch that one.
2: I've never seen it either. It looks boring. Okay, looks so, boring.
1: So for the last couple of these that we've talked about where we've been looking at Best Picture winners, we've also used it as an opportunity to revisit the Oscars from that year. And like we said, this one did very well at the Oscars, winning, well, winning Best Picture, winning Best Supporting Actress, winning Best Director, uh, which I think was making up for the fact that uh, Ron Howard didn't win it six years earlier for Apollo 13. Um, but that's regardless. Uh, it won Best uh, best Adapted Screenplay. Um, so looking back From on From the writer what... of
0: Batman and Robin.
1: <laughs> From the... <laughs> that I did not realize. <laughs> But looking back on this uh i mean is is this how it would have gone uh, today i mean how what what do you guys think would so, anything have changed
0: i think uh, i was thinking about this and i think the best picture lineup would not be close to what it was that that year i think that i think a beautiful mind would still be nominated uh, along with fellowship of the ring and but i think black hawk down amelie and Maybe Gosford Park still would get in there. Would be the other nominees, and in in, the, in that group, Beautiful Mind is still definitely winning.
1: So you have you have that, and uh, Kicking Out, In the Bedroom, and Moulin Rouge.
0: Yeah, I, I think. And, Boulder, and it, neither it, of those I don't think would really stand a chance in 2019. Of getting. And In the it. Bedroom is
1: like an all-time favorite of all three of us too. So
0: that had to be the oddest Best Picture nominee at the time, like. That does not fit the profile of any other Best Picture nominee ever. I can't Miramax, like... man.
2: Harvey Weinstein.
1: Yeah, you get the Weinstein machine behind it and it's, uh, it's going to go places. All right, well. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. Go ahead, Zach. I,
2: I was going to say, I, I don't think this movie w- would win Best Picture anymore. I, I think Terry is right. Uh, this movie was an apology for Apollo 13. I think that hugely influenced voters in 2001. Now, if Ron Howard still hadn't won an Oscar by 2019, then who knows? I think the movie that you're missing out on that I think voters would vote for as Best Picture in 2019 would be Mulholland Drive. David Lynch got a Best Director nomination. There's no way that doesn't get a Best Picture nomination. And in the era of Birdman and Moonlight, I think Mulholland Drive wins Best Picture among 2019 voters
0: there's no way it wins best picture i think like, I mean, it does it, it could get nominated but i i don't know like, i i think honestly 2001 i was looking at it it, it was a really weak year at the oscars like the, there were not a whole lot of like real big options that didn't get nominated and the nominees kind of were lousy anyway which is yeah, why i think something I, like amelie would sneak in there or, or like the royal tenenbaums I, I could i feel like could yeah the royal tenenbaums
2: could have snuck in the royal tenenbaums did good at the golden globes i believe that year but uh I disagree with you Todd. I think 2001 was a really strong year. I think a lot of those movies are are pulled up pretty well. In the Bedroom is a top 10 movie of all time. A Beautiful Mind is a top like 35 movie of all time. It's a pretty strong year. I'll well, no, I do mean, defend 2001. There,
0: there are good there are good movies, but like I mean Moulin Rouge and and Gosford Park, I mean these aren't great movies. These are these are movies that just got nominated. Gosford Park was
2: the I've, British movie okay. or whatever.
1: I've always been a huge fan of Moulin
2: Rouge. Yeah, me and, too. Uh, Moulin Rouge I, resuscitated I the musical. It, it, it did. It saved the musical. And that's, it, it, it beckoned into Chicago winning the next year.
1: And, and that's something that um, that's interesting. I've, I've been watching the CNN documentary series, of Movies, and it spends a decent amount of time talking about Moulin Rouge and how influential it was on what was happening moving forward. Which I didn't necessarily realize at the time, but I've always I've always loved that movie. I would honestly that would have had a decent shot at winning Best Picture, also. Um, I, I think A Beautiful Mind has as good a shot as any of winning Best Picture still, with uh, uh, nowadays even with uh, even with the different uh, different perspective on things.
2: I think the movie would have gotten into some serious backlash with the historical inaccuracies, and it and it did have backlash in two thousand one, but. That backlash was sort of overshadowed by Russell Crowe beating up the reporter in uh, at the, at the uh, one award ceremony. So everyone was like, "Oh, you know, the, the backlash of this movie is Russell Crowe, not so much the factual inaccuracies of the movie." And. Russell Crowe suffered his consequence, for, and he didn't win Best Actor, but the movie still won Best Picture. I think today, I mean, I realize Green Book just won Best Picture, and this is definitely something I want to talk about on the podcast, which is historic. how, how important is a movie being historically accurate for us to, to really value it. But uh, I think in this era of Green Book, I, I don't know if A Beautiful Mind could survive that kind of backlash.
0: Well, you can have backlash, but yeah, like you said, Green Book won, Casey Affleck still won, you know, Mel Gibson was still nominated for Best Director, it doesn't It doesn't matter, like I mean, you can have backlash, but in the end, like, those movies still get nominated if they're good enough, and they still win if they're good enough, or if enough people um, like them. Like, Monsters Ball had- easily could have been in this race too, I mean, and I know that that movie would seem kind of problematic now, but I mean, that probably actually would play into its favor in some ways.
1: Green Book had backlash, it still won. Bohemian Rhapsody had backlash, it was still nominated, and Rami Malek still won. I, I don't true. think the backlash nex- necessarily um, kills it its It gives it publicity, it
0: helps its That's true. chances.
1: If, if a movie's going to be beloved, it's going to be beloved, regardless of the backlash. Okay, so
2: let, let me ask you this then. Sorry, Terry, just, just yeah. one more thing. though. No, so no, no. so ahead. Okay, so we, we know that the Oscars maybe overlooked those things. Does it give either of you issues with this movie knowing how fast and loose it plays with history. Like that's one of my biggest problems with Green Book, you know? I couldn't separate the method of production from the quality of the movie itself. And while I still like A Beautiful Mind, I think it's, it, it's problematic in the way that it de-emphasizes things like John Nash's anti-Semitism and uh, the fact that Alicia Nash was from El Salvador and they weren't married for a period of time. I mean, those are some pretty major holes that the movie conveniently sort of omits.
0: Well personally I don't it doesn't matter to me because I don't know the details of the tree story, so I, I I guess I wouldn't know unless I read an article about it or read a book read the book or something, so I'm like I it wouldn't matter necessarily unless I knew those things. I don't know. And I think I think part of
1: part of always a part of movie making is taking a story and and finding what's going to make it the best movie. And, and de-emphasizing some of those details and not addressing some of those details. I mean, you can only talk about so much. I mean, if, if they uh, talked about everything, we would be complaining, why, why did we turn John Nash into a three-hour epic? We, we could cut out some of the stuff that doesn't matter. Um, and then they don't address it, and we say, how could you not address this? This is major parts of his story. Uh, but they focused it in and, and made it a tight, uh, compelling movie instead of making it such a more of a trooper trail I, I, it doesn 't bother me at all
2: see i don 't know i i 'd like to agree with you and i 'm sure that 's ron howard 's attitude, but i mean they' were just like like they were divorced for or separated for a long period of time i mean john John Nash had uh, a, a kid uh, he he had a kid from a woman that he wasn't married to I mean again maybe these are extraneous details but I don't know the movie just kind of glosses over those things and you know it's it's the neatest tidiest picture of john John Nash's life and I think some of those details would have made for a more richer and complex picture of, of who he was but uh, I also agree with you Terry it, it's about uh, you know what makes what makes the most entertaining movie so I don't know I'm just I, I'm, I'm a little bit torn with it and it's something that I think in 2019 maybe plays different for me today than it would have back in 2001
1: well and i think also john nash presents another issue entirely in how much of his of his demons were brought about by his psychosis too i mean if he if he's fighting through this this illness cold turkey basically how much of his how much of his you know demons that come out his skeletons in his closet were brought about by those times when he was low trying to deal with deal with this and, uh, and fight through this. I, I read somewhere about some of his anti-semitic remarks um, that but uh, it also said um, by most reports those anti-Semitic remarks remarks came out during a psychotic break. So okay. I how much is that how much of that plays a part in
2: it? But then okay, what about the thing where it's like how John Nash's delusions were all like oral they weren't they weren't visual at all. I mean that's a pretty major difference too that the movie,
1: true but that's also it, it's it's making a movie that's
2: I, I i i agree but it's just it's food for thought just saying
0: but okay, okay so you're saying you could go watch this movie and be completely blown away by it. you said top 10 experience of all time and then you you love it so much that you research it and you realize that some of it wasn't accurate and then that would change your opinion of the movie i mean your experience watching the movie doesn't change like Shouldn't that be all that matters? Uh,
2: that's that's a great point, but I, I don't know. It's it, I think it's a personal personal philosophy. If, if if I'm gonna watch a movie, you know, I want the movie to be true. You know, I, I don't I don't want there to be that much manipulation if it's based on a true story. What what I want it's it's like you know it's like that episode of Seinfeld when Terry when Jerry dates uh, Terry Hatcher. He wants her to have real breasts, not fake. He wants the real experience. <laughs> Wow, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I would go there. Second Terry Hatcher mentioned on this podcast, too. Sorry. <laughs> and just
1: like that episode, this was spectacular. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's real, and it's spe- except it's not real. But it's still spectacular.
1: <laughs> All right, let, let's talk a little bit about um, about Russell Crowe here. Um, this was his third straight Oscar nomination for Best Actor. He was nominated in 99 for The Insider. He won in 2000 for Gladiator He was nominated here for A Beautiful Mind um, Two parts One, should he have won in 2001 And two How would you rank those three performances in, uh, in how good they are Todd, I'll go to you first
0: uh, Well, it, it depends Since he won the year before I mean, I, I, I mean, he definitely was the best of the nominees So I guess in that case, yeah, he should have won I would say The Insider is definitely the best of the three, then A Beautiful Mind, then Gladiator. But what I noticed, like what I thought was like, has anyone had a run like that, like five out of seven years, he was the main character in a Best Picture nominee? Like, that's got to be some kind of record, right?
2: In in the modern era, I'm sure, maybe in like the thirties, you know, someone like Spencer Tracy or Henry Fonda might have done that, but certainly- Ten
0: nominees and stuff, yeah.
2: Yeah, but certainly in modern day, yeah, that's got to be a record.
0: Zach, what do you think? Uh,
2: Well, it's sort of a tricky question, because I think he absolutely should have won for A Beautiful Mind, and that's the best of the three performances. However, I also think Tom Wilkinson and In the Bedroom is, like, one of the greatest performances of all time, too. And I I guess I would have personally given it to Tom Wilkinson, but I don't know how you don't give it to Russell Crowe. So it's it's a difficult question to answer. But in terms of those other two movies, I, I... um, the, the Insider's like the less flashy role So I can understand why people would go it, Both of those are better than Gladiator And it's ironic that he won for Gladiator
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of the consensus that Gladiator is the worst of the three performances I would put A Beautiful Mind 1 And, um, and The Insider 2 But It's kind of funny, we talked about how, you know, Ron Howard... I don't think necessarily A Beautiful Mind won Best Picture as an apology to Ron Howard... But I do think he won Best Director as an apology... Yeah. uh, For Apollo 13. So who would have won otherwise? Peter Jackson? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. 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 But I think... uh, I think Russell Crowe won for Gladiator as an apology for The Insider. And then... They... Gave it... uh, And then they didn't give it to him in 2001 partially because I do not think they didn't want to do back-to-back again. They just did it a few years earlier, 93-94, with Tom Hanks. And I think um, they, there was also some of the controversy with Russell Crowe, but also I think there was that, that idea of, uh, I mean, the Oscars love a good story and the optics of watching Denzel Washington win Best Actor for the first time since Sidney Poitier, while well, Sidney Poitier wins an honorary Oscar that night they, they couldn't pass up that storyline. And especially with knowing Halle Berry was probably going to win Best Actress. Um, and so you, ha- you had that, that narrative that you could weave through this. They, they couldn't pass that up. Um, which is a shame because watching this, I, more than any other time I've watched this movie, I was so blown away by how good Russell Crowe was in this movie. He's just He's so good. And you look at these three performances... Can you get three more diverse performances in three straight years than the Insider Gladiator and in A Beautiful Mind? They are polar opposites of each other. If there, if there could be three polar opposites,
2: these would be them. I mean, it, it, it's amazing. And then if you add in LA Confidential and Master and Commander. And then Cinderella and Man Cinderella. two years after that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, he had one heck of a run from 97 to 05. Where he showed such a wide range of, of uh, performances.
2: And then it all crashed and, and came to a halt when he did that stupid movie in France um, A Good Year.
1: Oh, yeah, the yeah. The Lassie yeah. Hallstrom film. And now, and now he's more, more just a punchline. That, that was Lassie Hall's. Javert and Les Mis. Oh, you're right. It wasn't Lassie. It was, was, Ridley, was Scott.
2: Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott. It should have been Lassie Hall. How did Lassie Hall not direct that movie? That's a That's Lassie Ridley Scott's an <laughs> idiot. <laughs> but you're right, Terry. I think um, anyone under the age of 25 now knows Russell Crowe as the guy in Lamez who can't sing.
0: Mm-hmm. Or, exactly. or the good guys, or not that movie.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, you yeah. know...
1: He, or he was, wasn't, he, he's wasn't kinda, he Superman's dad in, a man, in Man of Steel, too?
2: <laughs> he was, like, spectacularly bad in Les though. Like, comically, like, meme-inspiringly bad. So, yeah. it's it's hard to, to convince the younger generation that at one time he was the best actor working in Hollywood.
1: Okay. Well, uh, that's enough on, on the Oscars. Unless any of you guys have any hot takes on Jennifer Connelly winning Best Supporting Actress... Well, the only thing I, I, s- I think she oh, would have been
0: nominated on. for Best Actress in 2019, and I think Maggie Smith probably would have won Best Supporting Actress that like year.
1: Kind of like a Felicity Jones nomination for uh, Theory of Everything.
0: Yeah, or Reese Witherspoon, Walk the Line, kind of. Yeah. She was nominated for the lead at the SAGs. So
1: That's not a terrible comparison, this and Theory of Everything, except this is 10 times better than Theory of Everything.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say about Jennifer Connelly, uh, she's kind of like Kim Basinger in the way that it was sort of uh, a comeback role for her, like Kim Basinger was in L.A. Confidential. Um, People have kind of wondered, I think, for a while, what ever happened to Jennifer Connelly. And I will also say that... Well, the year um,
0: before, she had Requiem for a Dream. It's not like she was out of the picture.
2: Yeah, but that wasn't a big... I mean, that wasn't really a huge movie. That was like an artsy movie that gained popularity with time. But, I mean, yeah, she you know—she was in Inventing the Abbots and a few other movies, too. But this was, like, sort of her comeback role, if I remember correctly. And uh, I will also add that I think her speech at the Oscars is one of the worst uh, speeches of all time. It was a terrible speech. She was just reading from a piece of paper. It felt very, like, rehearsed and unemotional. And she was very unsurprised.
1: I remember hearing her uh, interviewed about that. And uh, she had her speech all written out and didn't really, prop- like prep at all because she figured there'd be a podium and then she gets up there and there's no podium and she really felt stupid having to hold oh piece of
2: paper. that makes a little more sense
1: yeah
2: ron howard's speech was really good though he was really funny he told the story about how his mom thought he'd win best director for a beautiful full mind and then he said she had said that about every movie he had directed since 1983 that got a good laugh shout out to uh, Mer- uh to uh, gene level r.i.p
1: yep yep okay so let's get into some of our normal, uh, deep dive stuff here. Um, who has the highest war in this movie?
0: I, I... I honestly am going with Paul Bettany.
1: Did you know that having a hangover is,
0: uh,
1: is not having enough water in your body to run your Krebs cycles? Which is exactly
0: what happens to
1: you when you're dying of thirst. So! Dying of thirst?
0: would probably feel pretty
1: much
0: like the hangover that finally bloody kills you. Because I feel like that role is not all that easy to play as. It's like larger than life aura about him, and it's hard to picture someone else doing that because he's got that, like, really strange voice, but he's also, like, really boisterous but likable somehow at the same time. Even though, like, it's not it makes you not even want to believe, like, the inevitable that he's not even real. But. I mean, I know we have another category for this, but oddly enough, Nicholas Cage would have absolutely killed this role, though. It's like the one person I could see <laughs> playing Charles.
2: I think a lot of other actors could have played Charles, like just any up-and-coming British actor from two thousand one, like Jude Law or Ewan McGregor or Clive Owen. Any of those guys could pulled it off.
0: Uh, those men have but, been the
1: same, though. They're 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 not. Yeah, they're not as just gangly as. Paul uh, yeah. like, he I has this Paul and Paul a nightscale in that same year. Like he it. is so
0: crazy, and they, they
1: basically plays the exact same character in both of them.
0: <laughs> I know, and it makes it hard to picture anyone else being able to do that. I mean, I know, I know you guys know. could say, I know you guys are going to say like Russell Crowe would be the highest war, but I don't think. I mean,
2: I'm not like that's not my pick.
0: Well, I, I feel like return? Nash could have been played by Pilot. By Robin Williams, definitely. Philip Seymour Hoffman, obviously. I even someone like Guy Pierce, I feel like could've played that role pretty easily. I, I don't think it's that high of a war for, for Russell Crowe. I, I, I have
1: somebody else. I mean I, I would I would like to say him, but I'm gonna say someone else. I'll I'll go next. So my uh my okay. my highest war is a tie. Uh, between Adam Goldberg and Anthony Rapp for playing Saul and Bender. Come on,
2: Bender. Whoever wins, Saul does his laundry all semester. Does that, does
1: that seem unfair to anyone else? Not at all. <laughs> Look at him.
0: Nash!
2: Taking a reverse
0: constitutional.
1: I'm hoping to extract an algorithm to define the movement. Psycho. So cool.
0: Hey,
2: Nash, I thought you dropped that. You ever gonna go to class?
1: Because, um... <clears throat> they, they are... Okay. These two you know, we first see them in dazed and confused as these best buds that are talking this high philosophical stuff around everything else that's going on and they've got such good chemistry and then they don't see the screen again together for 7 years until a beautiful mind and it almost is like they're the exact same characters just grown up and they're and they're doing the exact same thing they still have this amazing chemistry together and, and if it were two other guys, it wouldn't have had that chemistry and that recognizability. And I've always loved Adam Goldberg. I think he's hysterical in everything he is. And he has, he has that, that look to him that, and that sound to him that nobody else has. And nobody else could do it exactly how he does it. So, yeah, I'm going Anthony Rapp, Adam Goldberg. Those two are great together, and they should be in more stuff together.
0: Yeah. I just feel like the off-screen chemistry makes it easy. I mean, it could have been Matt Damon and Ben Affleck or something like that. I mean, it, I feel like it's not that hard to find a couple of guys who could have, but it wasn't. This kind of movie. I, I think you're,
2: <laughs> yeah, I think you're just infatuated with the char- with the with the two actors, Terry, but mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily translate to a high war. See, if we're talking about war, we're talking about a role that no one else could have played as well. And I mean, yes, I want to say Russell Crowe, but I'm going to go out and say a character that has not been mentioned yet, and that is the guy from the Nobel Committee who interviews John Nash. The image of the Nobel is... Oh, I see. So you came here to find out if I was crazy.
0: Find out if I would screw everything up if I actually won.
2: Dance around the podium, strip naked and squawk like a chicken, things of this nature. (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. His name is Thomas King. Now, when you watch the movie, that guy looks like he's from the Nobel Committee. Am I right? I mean, he—you're not wrong. He, what, <laughs> like, when I when I re- was rewatching it yesterday, I thought that was such an accurate like ac- actor or, or casting that I thought that mu- that guy must be from the Nobel Prize Committee. Like, you know how sometimes in, in fictional movies based or movies based on historical fact, they'll actually cast the real people. You know. Um, like in 93, there's some real people in flight control. I thought in this movie they actually cast the guy from the Nobel Prize Committee. That is how accurate the actor um, Austin Pendleton is as the Nobel Prize Committee guy. I, so,
0: but but I I didn't th- I, w- I wouldn't have thought that because I see him and I'm just like oh that's the completely incompetent lawyer in my cousin Vinny. I mean that's what everyone knows that guy from. Not <laughs> I
2: didn't know Vinny. him from my cousin Vinny. I I, I I saw that on his IMDb, but I didn't remember him in that. I mean, come on. He's, with the,
0: the, he's the lawyer they have at the beginning who, like, uh, who, who can't do anything. He's, like, stuttering over and sweating, and he can't figure anything out, and then they fire him and hire Vinny.
2: Okay, well, whatever. This was the role he was born to play. I love how his glasses are a little, like, askew. They're not, like, symmetrical. I mean, that's totally like a guy from the Nobel Committee. I mean, come on. No one could have played that role. No one, except for him. Or it played it as accurate.
0: <laughs> Maybe a member okay. of the committee could have.
2: maybe he was a member of the committee we just don't realize it
1: Uh, oh another thing that
2: that the movie is historically inaccurate about is the last you know 10 minutes which maybe we'll talk about at some point but oh yeah you know John Nash never gave a speech I mean, so like, and again, I, that, that to me as a viewer, it kind of ruins the experience. That That's sort of like the penultimate, mo- you could say that's one of the penultimate moments of the movie, when he gives this impassioned speech, which is a very corny speech, and then we get the slow clap afterwards, and Jennifer Connelly crying in the audience. I mean, I know we're getting into flaws, we'll, we'll save that for later, but that didn't happen in real life. So again, you just kind of, these things sort of start cumulatively adding up, and I don't know, to some degree, you have to start recognizing that a lot of this movie is made up, like John Nash's uh, friends. Made up.
1: Uh, I, I don't care if it didn't happen I don't care if it's corny That scene like almost brings me to tears Every time I watch it Alright Let's move on uh, Where do we want to go, go next? What are we talking about next?
0: We want to go straight to wor- Worst performance?
1: Yeah let's do worst performance
2: mm. Not a lot of bad performances In this movie
1: no,
0: there the aren't. one The one that stood out to me was Judd Hirsch. Uh, he doesn't have all that much screen time, but he's an Oscar nominee, and he, like, really phones it in. Like, there are a couple lines that could have been something interesting, but instead he just sort of, like, underplays it, and it's to the point of almost being boring and definitely forgettable. I don't know how they got him to play that, like, meaningless role. I think it's only meaningless because he really sucked at it. <laughs> okay.
1: Um, that... that that's okay I, I don't i didn't necessarily mind him I, I think i think it has a very it's a very low war performance but um but i didn't mind his performance like yeah, exactly. anybody could have He underplays
0: it i mean he doesn't yeah. do anything like he could have it could have been an interesting character okay
1: so so my worst performance is gonna go into one of the like one of the big flaws like if you look up like Flaws in Beautiful Mind, this is one of the biggest like filmmaking flaws, and I'm giving it the worst performance. I'm giving the worst performance to the one girl who tries to give away everything. As John Nash is being driven away and Charles is standing there watching him, one girl peeks her head out from behind Charles to try and see what's going on. When it shouldn't happen because he's not real, but there's that one girl who breaks and looks around him. That is by far the worst performance in the movie. And the I'm going to say, <laughs> worst performance by an extra of all time. Of all time. Because everyone looks at that and says, see, look, look, they made a mistake. He's not real. No one should be having to look around him to see what's going on. You're and she saying, had to get like, her face in the camera. Worst performance by an extra of all time.
0: You're almost saying that no L- LVP about. would be the editor. <laughs>
1: you have no idea what i'm talking about no. there, there's what's go back and go back and watch it so when he gets when the when he gets um, apprehended gets dr- apprehended and and driven away from
2: harvard from his speech from harvard okay. from his speech yes he's harvard, being Jerry. driven
1: away yeah harvard <laughs> harvard yeah shut up and 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 charles is watching him get driven away there's a girl who peeks her head out from behind him to see around him to see the car and and it's something that shouldn't have to happen because if he's imaginary, they don't have to look around him to see what's going on. But there's this one girl who peeks her head oh, around. I
2: see
1: what you're saying. That and and it's always pointed to as like if you look at like top flaws in movies, uh, that'll always end up being on the list As someone peeks their head around around Paul Bettany to see what's going on, even though he's not real. It's like the one time that they, they mess it up. So that, that's my least, that's my worst performance.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm going to go a uh, slightly different direction with the worst performance. It's a tie for me, and it's a tie between Cheryl Howard, who's Ron Howard's wife, as the Harvard administrator, and Rance Howard as the white-haired patient. And the reason I'm giving them worst performance is I don't remember them in the movie. I would think both of them would stand out because... You know, everyone knows Rance Howard, the reverend from Apollo 13, and, uh, you know, having watched Ron Howard's acceptance speech in which he thanks his wife, I know what she looks like and I don't remember either of them in the movie, so they must have been pretty bad performances.
1: I'll go with that. I'll go with that. Those picks don't suck.
2: I wonder if Cheryl Howard was the, as Harvard administrator, I wonder if she was the one that was like, Professor Nash, over here! and Oh, that could be. Yeah. But I don't think. Apparently, Bryce Dallas Howard is in that scene too. Oh, interesting! So he must have invited the family to uh, to, sh- to shoot that day.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: This was a stupid category. These are all. Th- <laughs> th- this movie is a very well acted movie. There's there's not a lot of mm-hmm. bad performances in it.
1: Okay, so do we, we want to go biggest uh, douchebag? Yeah, let's go biggest oh, douchebag. There are
2: some douchebags in this movie.
0: Um. Okay, I'll start out. Like for me Yeah, go for it. I mean there's a couple you could point out, but I'm going with Nash.
1: Can we leave one open, Professor? It's really hot, sir.
2: Your comfort comes second to my ability to hear my own voice.
1: Personally, I think
2: this class will be a
1: waste of your and what is infinitely worse my time.
0: Because like He's, like, standing there trying to, like, come up with a mathematical equation to manipulate these girls into getting some ass. I I mean, like, he's, like, this smug. He's got this horrible attitude. He acts above everybody. He's a narcissist to the point that he's, like, refers to everybody else as, like, lesser mortals. I mean, he's kind of a piece of shit. Like, he's he's totally a douchebag.
1: Especially when you realize that all of the douchiness of Charles is actually him also. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes, <laughs> you add that you add that to it, like, like Nash pushed his desk out the window,
0: and then laughed and then yelled at the people outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: he's, that's he's not a, a bad bag. choice. That's not a bad choice. Zach, who do you got? Yeah,
2: it, it's really hard to argue with John Nash because I mean, on the one hand, you could maybe say. Hanson, played by Josh Lucas, but that's what I, I was going to say. I actually, you know, obviously over the course of the movie, he becomes considerably less of a douche. And even at the beginning of the movie, he loses to John Nash. I mean, John Nash is the one who gets the fellowship at Wheeler. So I can't really say Josh Lucas because I think he, he becomes more humanized as the film goes along. I would say the biggest douchebag is the is the guy in uh, the classroom where there's no air conditioning, and he, and he's complaining about uh, no no air conditioning and uh, the windows are closed. He's, he's a douche. That,
1: that's a horrible. No, he's he's not. <laughs> he's, he's just whining. He's not a douchebag. Yeah, he's just a Or how about the const- how about
2: the construction crew? They're pretty that's pretty douchey to be doing the construction right in the middle of campus during the school day. I mean, come on. But they did yeah, listen to Yeah, especially
1: douchey that as soon as they're <laughs> as soon as they're told about it, they move. Yeah, very douchey.
0: That right, sorry, I, I don't know camera. about douchey. Like I have I have more to talk about those jackhammer guys later.
2: Oh, okay.
0: okay. I, did, I want to hear this. <laughs> All right. So, so my
1: my my, my douchebag is is the first half hour of Hanson.
2: What if you never come up with your original idea, huh? How will it feel when I'm chosen for Wheeler, and you are not? What if you lose?
1: Because you're right, Hansen definitely redeems himself at the end and becomes a really, really strong character. But the first half hour, he is the biggest douchebag. And he's just this smug dude that is just more... If anyone is thinks he is more superior than everybody else besides John Nash, it's Hansen. And Hansen actually portrays it more than John Nash does. And he's always giving him crap. He's always trying to trying to put him down because he's he's the other guy that got this big scholarship. And uh, and yet he he gracefully accepts defeat and then he's the one that helps get John back back going at the end. So I can't say the whole movie, but like college version of Hansen is an incredible douchebag.
0: Yeah,
2: I think yeah,
1: and it, then it also- he grows up.
0: It also makes him the biggest stick man too. Obviously, I mean, he's like cocky. He's an asshole. He like carries himself like he's above everybody else, and he, the way he interacts with people, like, like, yeah, he's he's a he's a stick man. And plus, it's Josh Lucas. I mean, well, that,
2: that's what I was going to say. Is I think Terry, your opinion also is sort of muddied by the fact that it is Josh Lucas. I mean, the guy looks like a douchebag. He he, he, does. he should play douchebags for his entire career. You know. Um, that is sort of a high-war performance, too, in a sense, because what other actor could look quite that douchey? Except for maybe Bradley, Matthew McConaughey.
1: I was going to say, give it five years, and it would have been uh, Bradley Cooper. Yeah.
2: Oh, God, yeah, that's, a, that's a good one. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you Like, absolutely like right. Wedding Crashers, Bradley Cooper. You're absolutely Cooper. right. 2007, Bradley Cooper could have nailed that role.
0: Yeah, he would have. <laughs> I actually also have Hanson as my favorite minor character. Like, I mean... I feel like he's supposed to be unlikable but he's like he's like clearly brilliant able to function as a normal human being also so I don't think he necessarily is all that douchey like and he like crushes Nash when they play go which I think is kind of awesome because you don't really expect it you think Nash is just gonna like slay him and uh, I don't know he doesn't hold a grudge Nash comes back into his circle and I don't know he's able to Josh Lucas makes something more out of this character than you would have thought like I, I, he's like my favorite my favorite supporting minor character in the whole movie.
1: Well, and it also shows that Hansen may be a douchebag, but he's also pretty much almost as smart as John Nash too. Like he can actually match wits with him.
0: And yeah, I mean, John Nash he, just doesn't want to admit it. Ordinarily, he would be the person who's like super jealous that he, of Nash that he's trying to sabotage him, but he doesn't because he's actually not an he's not an idiot. <laughs> yeah. And and,
1: and I love how how many other characters you have such a clearly defined character arc, from a guy who spends an hour of the middle of the movie off screen.
2: Yeah, doesn't doesn't um, he say like that he has two weapons briefs under security review by the Department of Defense? I mean, he's more accomplished than John Nash is at the beginning of the oh, movie. Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. You just don't believe it because it's Josh Lucas.
2: Yeah, slash Bradley Cooper. <laughs> Should have been Exactly!
1: Exactly! Uh, okay, so we, we did a couple different things here. We've got stickmen and minor character out there. Zach, who would who would you say is your uh, your top stickman here? Well,
2: I, can I start with my minor character because I've already mentioned him? Yes. Um, and, yes. And that is Thomas King from the Nobel Prize Committee. I mean, I, I love that character. And I think in a way, and again, I don't want to go too much into other categories, but like he makes a really solid low-key MVP case in the movie because... The last 20 minutes of A Beautiful Mind kind of suck, you know, and I, I think we'll, we'll talk about that. Although I think Terry disagrees, but he salvages the last 20 minutes of that movie. He's awesome um, in in that role. So so Thomas King from the Nobel Committee is is my favorite minor character. Um, as for Stickman. Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, clearly, I, I, I think it's questionable Hanson's abilities as a stickman because he's constantly one upped, not just by John Nash, but also by Saul and Bender. I mean, that's pretty bad. That, 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 that's 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 a pretty bad, um, you know, long term history. I'm for stickman. I think it's pretty clearly Charles as as the stickman. I mean, you know, he's he's that's what he's, I was gonna go. He's with. pretty. He's witty. He's irresistible. That he he, had, he talks to all the pretty young things about D.H. Lawrence. You know, and even when he takes care of Marcy uh, after her parents die, I'm sure he's still getting it in. So I think Charles is the clear stickman.
1: Only in John Nash's mind would D.H. Lawrence be a way to get into girls' pants. (laughs) 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 Over and over
2: and over. I have a take about D.H. Lawrence, but I'll I'll wait too. I'll I'll wait (laughs) until Todd's take about the, the construction crew.
1: That that's the one thing about about Paul Bettany is Charles and his performance of it. Does anybody actually believe that that Charles is like going on lecture tours? I mean, <laughs> I mean, or, or or teaching at these colleges? That he would have actually ever been accepted to Princeton? That he ever actually went to a class? I mean, I think when you start to think of it that way. It's like, well, yeah, this guy has to be made up. There's no way he can be real.
2: I think it's more unbelievable that he didn't once go to dinner with john alicia nass what what were his excuses you know like why he's, yeah. he's in town obviously he can't eat and uh, whatever you know food food he's the one that tells john to eat food and then ironically he's yeah. the one who doesn't eat and and then
1: and then he quotes it later on yeah that's that's a he quotes charles to somebody else that's that was kind of cool my favorite minor characters i mean solemn bender they they're just awesome. I remember th- watching this when when I was younger and the first time I watched it I was like, Saul Bender, they're just like these these idiot follow-alongs that are just kind of just yeah. Kind of like like I said, grown-up versions of their characters from days of confusion. They're not idiots said no one. No, they're not. John and, Hirsch and says they're, they're
2: extraordinary. They're extraordinary yeah, mathematicians. That,
1: that was and that's that's the that's the thing is they they're like Gonna go do other things, aren't they? And no, they they just want to follow John Nash. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I they're they're awesome. Uh, the the joke on the porch with uh with Saul when, uh, you know, what what's the point in being crazy if you can't have a little fun with it is uh is is pretty awesome.
0: That wasn't his okay. joke though.
1: No, yeah, yeah, but but his reaction to it makes it awesome, because it's Adam Goldberg. I just like Adam Goldberg. He needs to be in more stuff. Okay.
2: So I, I I know if if um we've already mentioned Nicolas Cage already on this podcast on, on this episode, but I'm wondering if we can go to, into that category too. Who Nicolas Cage would play in this movie? Yes, let's do it. Todd mentioned that he would play Charles, which I completely disagree with. Um, I, I,
1: I, <laughs> Why? <laughs> he could he could I mean it, it would have to be like if you went like early '90s Nicolas Cage.
2: Yeah. Like, vampires like, kiss he walks through, like
0: The prodigal roommate! <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, maybe that scene. <laughs> That's the only scene.
0: Okay, I don't know. Can, I mean, can I, can I, I think mine? he also could have played Nash. Like, I mean, he's great at playing characters with tics, and, like, I never <laughs> picture him as being a genius, but, like, he's got that bit of crazy, that, that misunderstood genius thing could be electric if he played Nash. Like, I think it'd be kind of a different sort of movie, but I think he could do it. Today's Nicolas
1: Cage would play Parcher.
2: Yeah.
0: He, he, would,
1: he would be Probably. Parcher, in, yeah, and, yeah, and would and would just blow that role out of the park. And none of us have mentioned it yet, but Ed Harris, I mean, he's awesome in everything, but he's very, very good in this, this role, This is our too.
0: third Ed Harris deep dive.
1: <laughs> it is. <laughs> yes. And I don't mind it. <laughs>
0: or if we do a
2: history this, of exactly, next. I know. Or Glengarry Glenn Ross. Um, uh, who Nicholas Cage would play? I think, obviously, John Nash. But I think you're right. It does depend on the the time of Nicolas Cage, what what point in his career uh, we're talking about. Because I I also think though, as Parcher, I think he would have ruined the movie. I mean, yes, he would have been great as Parcher, but then he would have chewed up scenery and absolutely derailed any sort of emotional. You know, uh, connection that that we have because he would have stolen the scenery. But uh, no, a Nicholas Cage. This is partially. You're still talking to me, soldier. This is why (laughs) I I can't really name uh, Russell Crowe as. as the you know uh, highest war because i think Nicolas cage could have played john nash i mean it would have had to if this movie had been made 10 years earlier or something but i think he would have been amazing as john nash what what other actor can you know have that sort of emotional vulnerability and frailty while also being a genius while also being kind of a badass
0: philip more often
1: well he's like the cheat code though
0: I think Robin um, Williams is too, though. I mean, I, I think yeah. especially like mid-90s Robin Williams would have been perfect.
2: For this. He would have been interesting. I, I don't know. I, um, I, I mean, I think uh, John Nash is a good looking. Uh, this is like Russell Crowe's best looking ro- movie, by the way. He's a pretty good looking dude in this movie. And it's like believable that he would be banging Jennifer Connelly. And I don't see Philip Seymour Hoffman often doing that. Although he did bang Marissa Tomei in that one movie. So maybe it's not before impossible. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Yeah, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Yeah, good call.
1: I I like the argument for uh, Nicolas Cage uh, being John Nash, especially considering the year after this, he is uh, he does adaptation, which has all those nervous tics and everything, and he plays it very...
0: Yeah, definitely similarities in the movies.
1: But yeah, there's definitely similarities there, and so yeah, I could totally have seen it happen.
2: He would have needed to tone it down quite a bit. I mean that's one of the yes. great things about Russell Crowe in this movie is that I mean look it, it this role must have been like the equivalent of someone handing you just a million dollars because this is like Oscar juiciness personified. This is this is the dictionary definition of an Oscar role. And so there's every expectation. So let's
1: ha- let's hand it to Maximus Decimus Meridius and see what he can do with it. Well yeah, well, I but-
0: think the, I think it's a credit to Ron Howard because none of his movies are really all that loud like you know like that it's like he he makes it like sort of grounded and more more real than you would have normally seen in See, Oscar baity movie.
2: I disagree. I think it's in spite of Ron Howard. I think Ron Howard goes a little too heavy-handed with the emotions in this movie. Same with the music, with James Howard, with, or, uh, uh, James Horner, which maybe was a flaw. We'll get to later. But I think because Russell Crowe underplays the role with like subtle ticks and subtle nuances of the character, that's what makes the character resonate. As opposed to you know the way that Nicolas Cage would have interpreted him, which is just over-the-top, hammy BS. But no, so it would have been like Ron Howard
0: wouldn't have let them do that. I, I I don't I feel like he would never let the character be portrayed that way.
2: Um, have you seen like How the Grinch Stole Christmas, or uh, Angels and Demons, or The Da Vinci Code? I mean, Ron Howard is is uh, not one for subtle. Exciting
0: genre movies that doesn't count. Like I mean, I would say more like. Well, I mean, what would you compare it to if it's filmography like Frost/Nixon or something like that? Like it's not like that. Like there's nothing that like is over the top in his movies. Like when he's actually making a serious picture.
1: I still say if you want someone to, to make a ma- a real-life story set in, like, anywhere between, like, the 40s and 70s, Ron Howard has to direct it. Because you have Apollo 13, you have Beautiful Mind. I loved Frost Nixon. He That's what Cinderella he's best Man. at. I guess that's the 30s. Cinderella, yeah. But, but that, that's what he's best at, and he does it so well that I, he shouldn't be making anything other than that. Because all this other stuff is yeah.
0: Yeah, The Missing is one of the worst movies of all time.
2: <laughs> Never saw it. But, uh, but Ebert gave it a big thumbs down. That was a big disappointment. That was his follow-up movie to A Beautiful Mind. Had very high expectations in uh, fall of 2003.
0: Somehow they made uh, Evan Rachel Wood like awful. Like, I don't, know, I don't know how you could make her be bad in anything, but they, they, they achieved it.
2: See, that's the problem with Ron Howard, is that he definitely has some spots in his uh, resume that are like, wow, that was not a good movie. Um, so in spite of the fact that we've, this is now the second Ron Howard movie we've deep-dived on and collectively agreed that it's one of the great movies of all time, I, for every one of these movies, there's also, uh, you know, The Missing or uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas or, you know, these movies that just were pretty bad.
0: The Robert Langdon films. Yes. At least he had Rush that recently, right? Like, that was an awesome movie. Yeah, that was pretty good. But again,
1: a true story set in, what, the 70s? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Again, that's what he should be making and nothing else.
2: Can I talk about the one thing about Russell Crowe's performance that I don't like? And I, Yeah,
1: let, let's just get into flaws, uh, and, and the, that'll be a good segue. I mean, this
2: isn't really a huge flaw, but I, it's just with his performance that's kind of bothered me. At the end of the movie, when he's old... He starts to sound like Dorothy Michaels as played by Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie. He kind of does with a little bit of a southern accent. Antitrust legislation. Well, Dr. Brewster. That, that's just what I was thinking. He should have said Dr. Brewster at some point. <laughs> it was like you know because the movie was shot in chronological order as everyone talks about so it must have been toward the end of the shoot you know russell crowe you know he he needed more pot or something and his voice he was just getting tired of acting He just you know just phoned it in a little bit let's just do dorothy michaels accent dorothy michaels yeah yeah
1: i i have to say that is one of your better impressions like that can go up there with sean connery your your dorothy michaels from tootsie impression yeah yeah, it's pretty good. Did you
2: ever it's see the good. clip of Dustin Hoffman on David Letterman talking about when he did the when he did the Dorothy Michaels voice and dress up for Jose Ferrer in a, in an elevator in at Woody Allen's offices? No. Oh, oh my gosh! You gotta watch it. It's one of the most hilarious stories ever. Watch it on YouTube. I know one of you listeners out there knows what I'm talking about. It's a great story. Anyway, sorry. Move on. Look it up on YouTube okay. if you haven't. Look up Dustin Hoffman Jose Ferrer.
1: Okay. All right, so uh, so flaws. Todd, do you have any flaws for us?
0: Yeah. Okay. So the uh, we got to go back to these jackhammers. Like, okay, there's <laughs> yes. a serious problem here because a there's no way if you're operating in a jackhammer that you could hear someone yelling at you from like 50, <laughs> like 50 yards away or whatever. That's that's a problem, but they're also not doing anything. There isn't like <laughs> construction around them. They're basically like the extras in uh in the Truman Show. The guys are like drilling into the side of a building, not doing anything, staying on a ladder. That's what they're doing in the like and like. But they're and they're just like, totally okay, like bailing on their job, like cause there wasn't a job. They were just randomly jackhammering like a sidewalk outside a building. That those guys, those guys uh, could be LVPS, and they also—I mean—they're they're definitely a flaw in the movie. They could have gotten somebody else. Maybe, maybe Ron Howard just isn't good at uh, getting extras in his movies. <laughs> you have somebody giving away a spoiler or like screwing up the spoiler. Also, oh, there was another thing that that bothered me. So they have that thing at the at the beginning. They tell you what year it is, and then the next time they they flash forward, they tell you the year, and they say five years later, and I'm like, well. Gee, thanks. In a movie about math, like nice. <laughs> you guys are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: did you guys Did you guys notice that? <laughs> I didn't necessarily notice that. No, no. But the the Truman Show comparison is inspired. Oh. Thank
0: you. <laughs> uh,
1: well, well, I already mentioned one of my flaws. The the other flaw that um. Also comes up quite a bit when you're talking just continuity errors. Um, when uh, when um, <clears throat> Alicia's in the in the bathroom and breaks the mirror and screams and everything, uh, she gets a drink of water. She drinks the entire cup of water, and then sits there and throws the water from the already all again filled glass at the mirror. Then throws the glass at the mirror and starts screaming. And how did the glass get filled again?
0: Wow, we're just like killing the editor <laughs> in this movie you
2: know who todd's lvp is like, Damn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's another one but uh but that's also because i've i've yeah studied this one and some of the nitpicks of it and that's definitely one of them
2: zach do you have any yeah i have a few how does john nash know who dh lawrence is I mean it doesn't seem like he's very familiar with literature it seems like he's doing math all the time and then along those same lines he makes that joke to saul about harvey the movie with james stewart in the in the, in the imaginary rabbit i think those are cultural references that john nash would have never ever said because as this movie painfully shows his whole life is absorbed by math so
1: yeah over it, under th- three movies that john nash has seen yeah,
2: under <laughs> especially by the 50s. Um uh oh, um I, I really have problems with the notion that uh these uh grad students at Princeton, one of the most prestigious universities in the country, some of whom have, you know, uh uh proofs under review with the Department of Defense have time to pick up women. I mean, really, like the scenes in the bar are ridiculous. They they you know, they and then what is with John Nash like bringing his work to the bar? Like that, like, the, the only possible explanation for that is that he's, like, so desperate to come up with a, his original idea that he, like, wants to go to a different location, but it just... Yeah, Charles told him his
1: ideas were out in the world, not in his room.
2: Yeah, it also sort of backs up Todd's case that John Nash was a huge douchebag, because who brings their work to a bar? I mean, that's, that's sort of a douchey thing to do. Um, and then uh, uh, I, th- I think, I don't know how the Nashes can afford to live in their house, which is massive. It, it, even though John Nash doesn't have a job, and Alicia Nash apparently works, but we don't know where she works. And then my last flaw... Where are all
0: flaw, kitchens yellow in the 50s or whatever? Like it looked like the house in Mad Men, I'm like, yeah, why is everything that's always comparison.
2: yellow? It's a great question, I don't know. Uh, then the last flaw I had, which is just more of a personal thing, but I feel like at the end when all the professors line up the pens uh, at, in at Princeton... Um, the professors all look like actors that were hired to look like professors. They don't look like professors, except for one of them. And it's the, (laughs) and it's the guy in the blue shirt who's younger than all of them. That guy looks like a professor. I mean, he absolutely nailed the douchey professor look. He actually should have also been a low-key, biggest uh, douchebag, but uh, he looks like a professor, the others do not. And I read somewhere that one of the actors in that scene was, the, was an, an actual professor who was also a math consultant for the film, and, I, and, I, and that must be him. I mean, that guy looks like a real professor. The others look like actors hired to be professors.
1: Yeah, there, there's a couple guys in that scene that they key in on and the camera focuses on in a way that makes you go, okay, am I supposed to know who that is and and the young guy is one and then the 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 guy in the wheelchair that comes up and like he yeah. he wrote the wheelchair guys John funny. Nash like he 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 mentions him by name it's like th- thanks Fred and it's like <laughs> how who is this guy? How do we know him and, and the, the, why why are you why are we saying? Why are we focusing in on these couple guys? I I I mean, Josh Lucas needed to be in that room and come up with a pen. That that would have made sense. Yeah. And why be he the last there? one? To, Where was no, he? Because they needed they needed wheelchair guy. Well, I, I, see, I, I feel I like this know. is kind of a
0: flaw too. That the movie is kind of too short. Like this needed to be like a full on like four part miniseries or something. Because there yeah, are a I lot could've. of characters that you they're like barely in anything and it, it like it doesn't have a lot of room to breathe with like these supporting characters. Like the Judd Hirsch character, we see him for like a scene and a half and he's gone. When, yeah. like, that's a character that should have had a, a lot more screen time. And nothing's ever really explained. Everything's just, like, mumbled over and, like, you're, like t- like talking above the audience because they're not actually letting you in on what's actually going on. Like, I feel like it needed to be longer. And another problem with the editor, apparently.
1: <laughs> I, I read somewhere that uh, that one of the deleted scenes that's on the... I didn't watch it, but one of the deleted scenes on the DVD is after he loses the game of Go to Josh Lucas, he goes back and invents his own game... That is like the perfect game that he would be able to win every time, and it's actually like a legit game that people play now.
2: That's interesting. Yeah. I can-
1: Anyways, uh, so I've got one. I've got one more flaw I want to talk about, um, and my flaw is uh, is just kind of like Alicia Nash in general as a character. Uh, so so let's think about this. She is a a calculus student at MIT that becomes a small-time painter and and works like, I mean, we never even actually hear what she does, but I mean, she's like borderline genius too. That's why he's attracted to her in the first place, and then she does nothing. I mean, we, we have no idea what she... It almost sounds like she's like waitressing at the end, like oh, I can, I'm I'm picking up an extra shift or something. Yeah, she does say that. And and it's like, but you're you're a genius. You went to MIT. Why aren't you getting a job teaching somewhere while so he can recover? It didn't make any sense to me.
0: She might have started jackhammering.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I you never know. uh, Yeah, I have a question for you that came up watching this movie. You know, I've seen this movie maybe. 15 times. And I I could do this podcast without having watched the movie, but this question never occurred to me until I just watched it. So the scene where John Nash goes to the Pentagon and does the prairie portage thing, right? And he finds the latitudes on the map. Is that real or was that imagined? Real. Are you sure though?
0: I think it was, I thought it was imagined.
2: See, I, I always assumed that it was real. And, but now I don't think it was Because he says like, This was the second trip to the Pentagon in four years Which I think sort of indicates That like, this is the start of his hallucinations And, and then later the movie shows That you know, he's not contracted With the Department of Defense He doesn't have any security clearances And if it, if, it, if it was a real scene Then how come the Department of Defense Completely abandons him after he breaks these codes
1: Because that was I mean I don't think that was Department of Defense it, Or it it was, the Pentagon, excuse me yeah, he so he's at the Pentagon and, and then he sees Parcher up in the up in the balcony and asks who's big brother and they don't even recognize well, I, the, the question. I, I
2: did notice that too. I mean that's a good point. That that would that would back up your argument that it's real, but like I I always just assumed that was a real scene, but I don't think it is.
1: Well in the way that the way that Saul and bender react when he gets back it's kind of this idea of I, I always thought of it as like the pentagon came to mit and picked him up yeah and took him and so in that case it's got to be real where parcher always comes to him
2: but they don't show that though they, all they show him is walking in it's not like anyone shows no but, being but dropped the, off. the
1: way the way sol and bender know about it it makes it feel like that's real
2: I think the movie's just f***ing with you. I, th- I think it's like one of those things, the, the subterfuge throughout the first hour and 15 minutes of this movie that make you think that this movie is about one thing, but it's really about his hallucinations. And I think that was just one big hallucination.
1: Well, and that's a whole other thing of, you know, you go back and look and what exactly was real. I, I never questioned that scene, but it, you, you make an interesting argument for it.
2: I mean, the, 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 the most inconsistent thing about that being a hallucination is that Pretty much all of his hallucinations squarely involve those three characters, so it would be a little bit inconsistent to show another hallucination that didn't have any of those characters in it, at least at first, until we see uh, Parcher. Yeah, but I don't know. Ron Howard yeah. needs to answer that question. I don't know.
0: Okay. One other one thing. My, one, oh, go ahead. Yeah. One other thing. I don't know if it's a flower conspiracy theory or maybe just like an observation that only I would have come up with, but like when Rosen. Uh, restrains nash and uh, the scene that when he wakes up is shot and it sounds exactly the same way as when ocelot's torturing solid snake and metal gear solid like I, I feel like it could be the exact same scene he even says like the same thing like sorry about the sorry about the restraints or something like that or like i'm like i'm like this is the exact same scene that i could not think about i i, can't, I don't remember the rest of the scene now because i i was still thinking about metal gear <laughs> what the uh, so uh, yeah, this this is a
1: little me. off topic, but one of my one of my favorite shots of the whole movie. We, I mean, we're we're bashing the editors, but one thing that they got right that is one of those clues that you can go back and and look at, and it you notice pretty easily. But um, Marcy, uh, there's the one scene where Marcy goes running and like chasing the pigeons, and she goes running through this field of pigeons, and the pigeons don't move.
0: Yeah, I know. That's yeah, like it's one really, of
1: the one yeah. of those one of those super subtle things that you don't necessarily notice what's going on until later, and you watch it back again. It's like, wait, she's not real, and she's running through the field. That's why they're not moving. But it, it's such a cool shot that they just kind of throw in there. That those seemed just like a always scene. Those pigeons were good extras. <laughs> Other <laughs> girl, not so much. Yeah,
0: CGI <laughs> <chat Pidons>. cameras. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> so
2: so can we talk about the elephant in the room for a second though because i think todd also mentioned it we, we glossed over the biggest flaw in this movie which is the terrible last 15 minutes of this movie i mean i i know I, terry i know you disagree and you're emotionally moved I, I by the scene but yeah. i think the last 15 minutes of this movie are really bad although i will say watching it again it wasn't as bad as i remembered but i still think I wish, and I even remember listening to Ron Howard's commentary on it. I don't remember exactly what he said, but it felt like he was disappointed by the last 15 minutes, too. This movie needs to end differently. It should have ended, I think, with the scene with John Nash and all of his students in the library, and Alicia comes in and cries and sees him. It just should have ended there, and then maybe do just a title card at the end that says John Nash won the Nobel Prize in 1994, show a picture of the real John Nash. But the speech is, oh, it's bad it that, that that's that it, it did not stick the landing
1: yep. either either end with end with end there or i could also see like ending with the pen ceremony yeah that would have been good too
2: yeah but but, but 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 by that point though you know that he's won the nobel prize so then you have to show the nobel ceremony which of course never actually happened in real life but then you don't have to show it but again,
1: I, I love that scene, so I'm not it gonna is, bash it.
2: It is it, it is it obviously pays off the scene earlier in the movie that that it shows. But what say you Todd about the ending because I know you agree with me.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I I think like I said it. I mean, it's it's overly sentimental and yeah, it does kind of like it doesn't end on a good on like a, a high note. It, it kind of ends on just like a somber sort of like fiddling out into the distance kind of thing. Like I I don't I don't think the ending actually works as well as it should, but I mean, it it is it is a moving scene. It's very inspirational, and that's why it won the Oscar. But I mean, it's it's, it's just not ha- the way I would have chosen to, to end it.
1: It's, Todd, it's Todd, hand you saying something is overly sentimental is saying that it has an ounce of sentimentality to it, and I <laughs> I, I love I love those sentimental moments, and oh, and you I two, two stars my girl. and yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Todd, who gave two stars to my girl no i I love I I love that ending scene and and even though it like it like I said before even though it didn't happen I mean they could have done in a slightly different way but yeah it gives that inspirational finish to it and that, hey, that really I, I love that I, I I love the ending scene
2: could we do a quick category real fast favorite scene in this movie because there are a lot of really good scenes
1: mm.
2: it, would you say that that's your favorite scene Terry at the end because I, I, I have one I want to mention but What's the? Um,
1: I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite, but it's it's one of those like if I were to do like a top five like tear jerking, mo like scenes in movies that would be that would be cracking my top five probably, just because of everything everything that's built up to that moment, and how he finally recognizes what uh what Alicia's meant to him that that would be that'd be there, I'll have to think about what my actual favorite scene is. go.
2: Alright, well, well, my favorite scene is the scene where John Nash says goodbye forever to Charles and Marcy. John, you can't ignore me forever.
1: Charles, you've been a very good friend to me. The best. I won't talk to you again.
2: I just can't and he mm. strokes her hair and she's a, and we see the point of view of the professor and then he goes in and says he's going to audit the class i love that scene i think that scene is like wow that that if we're talking about i mean it is maybe a sentimental scene but it, that is like a, a really strong emotionally resonant scene and i think it underscores one of the brilliant things about this movie which is that john nash you know needed his his delusions like they gave him a sense of security and purpose and it's like really sad that he has to say goodbye to him because it's, it's a part of himself that he's saying goodbye to uh, in a way. And I, I love that about, that's one of the things I love about the screenplay of this movie is that it, it really shows how his greatest gift, his greatest asset, his brain was also the thing that made him come undone. And uh, I think that scene just really underscores it. And I, that's a scene where I also love the, the James Horner music, which, which is good music, but it plays a little too loudly at times, but in that scene it plays really well.
1: Alright, Todd, the do you
0: scene, have a favorite scene? Yeah, the scene that, that stuck out to me was I mean, it's kind of an extended scene, I guess but it's when uh, Jennifer Connolly discovers, like, the shed of everything while he's trying to give his kid a bath and stuff, and it turns into that, like, argument with Ed Harris. Like, that scene was, like, absolutely breathtaking like, this time watching it. Like, every time it's just, like, that whole, like, maybe six, seven minutes are just, like I mean, it, it's something else like, that, that really sticks out to me.
1: Yeah, all the, way, all the way up to when she mentions the, uh, if, you, uh, if you try to kill me, he said to call him.
2: <laughs> no, I think the line is, if you kill me or something. Yeah. She yeah, had thrown yeah. me or something.
1: Now, um, so one of the scenes, as I was thinking about it, my favorite, like those awesome poignant scenes, one of the ones that stood out to me more this time um, was uh, the scene where he wakes up restrained in, uh, in Dr. Rosen's office. And he falls out of the chair and sees Charles. And without even any words being said, he goes, from, he goes from apologizing to Charles. Charles, I'm sorry, got wrapped up in this, to blaming Charles for all of it. And the, the expression on Charles' face doesn't change at all. And nothing is said, but all of a sudden... And, and, ev- and you feel it the whole time, too, as, as Rosen kind of moves around the room, too. We'll call it uh, The line. mood... Yeah, yeah, that, that mood changing of oh charles i'm so sorry you got wrapped up in this too. oh wait you're the one that turned me in and and it's it's such a great scene of of that acting without anything ever having to be said um
2: and that's also the scene that, where first time viewers say what the f***, because dr rosen says there's no one there like that's the first time anyone says it to john ganesh yeah.
1: but but also it, it i remember first time i watched it's like but I, I don't care what he says because he's a Russian spy. Yeah, and even even yeah. into the next scene of of him convincing Alicia to go check his office at uh, at Wheeler and go see what's been going on. Like, no, you just want to get his work. You're just trying to hijack what's been going on. And then it's finally when and that's my other favorite scene is when she finally figures it out and goes to the place his drop point and opens it up and there and there's been there are all the envelopes and then she shows up in the hospital with all the sealed envelopes and none of them have even been looked at because it's all been in his head the whole time and that that moment of you go oh crap this has all been a mistake it, it's it's incredible incredible
0: i like how he storms off like back into his cell it's like i'm getting out of here i'm going to go back and be in isolation and be drugged <laughs> i thought I, I always find, I like I chuckled at that i'm like that's really ironic
2: <laughs> and all this from the writer of batman and robin
0: <laughs> exactly
1: yes oscar winner
2: oscar winner keep goldman
0: so okay, what, are we gonna so do lvp mvp
1: let's do lvp mvp and uh and wrap this thing up so what are you guys thinking lvp mvp well, I, think, I think we kind of we kind of figured out LVP has to be the editor, right?
0: <laughs> Oscar-nominated <laughs> From everything editor. everything that we've
1: said. Yeah, Oscar-nominated editor of the movie.
0: <laughs> well, my other LVP, I, I, I think, is Saul. Because, like, Adam Goldberg, at no point do you get the indication that that character is smart. Like, I mean, he's just, like, on the side just cracking jokes Like while everyone else is working. Like, he's, he looks like an idiot and i he doesn't accomplish anything i feel like the the whole i i i don't really really know why he's actually in the movie he he doesn't have enough backstory for you to actually believe him as a as a actual student in that college he looks yeah, like an idiot
1: he does but i i love that guy <laughs> uh Zach, do you have anything else to add? For LVP? For LVP.
2: Uh, LVP of the movie for me would be um, Charles's brother-in-law slash Marcy's father who's too drunk to know that he was too drunk to drive. Bad move, no. bro. And left Marcy parentless and living with Charles. Charles, though, seems like a better caregiver than, than Marcy's parents would have ever been, though. So
0: He's an alcoholic.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But so was Marcy's dad. <laughs> Maybe it's a good thing Marcy doesn't grow up because she would probably be pretty f***ed up with all the alcoholic men in her life that who raised her.
0: She has a good book though,
2: and she well, and she has John John Nash. John Nash is her father figure.
1: Yeah, I'm. I think I'm gonna stick with the editor.
2: <laughs> good choice.
1: <laughs> I think I think we've we've covered enough things. Like you know what? They should have edited that out. They should have so edited that out. One best
2: editing this year. Because Black Hawk yes, Down?
0: Editing was... That's been. a good question. Let me look. Because A Beautiful Mind was nominated. There were two it was editors. Nominated. It had two editors. So it was a dual a dual threat of incompetence. It <laughs> was. Mike Hill. Matt,
2: Matt, Black Hawk Down was uh, edit, editing. You,
0: in 2019, the winner of editing, it's like no contest would have been Memento, right?
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Clearly.
1: Yeah, so Black Hawk Down beat a beautiful mind, Memento, Moulin Rouge, and Fellowship of the Ring. That's a bad group of nominees. Yeah, Memento would have won.
2: How did it not my... win?
1: Yeah, how Jeez. did Memento not win? <laughs> Goodness gracious.
2: Memento also would have been a Best Picture nominee.
1: Probably. And Guy Pierce would have been nominated fair. for Best Actor.
2: Yeah. Okay. All right, we ready for so, MVPs?
0: MVP. Uh,. Well, I, I went with Jennifer Connelly because I feel like that character is is sort of like the glue of the movie. Like, she's grounded and, like, generous, and it, it really take would take a real incredible human being to put up with all Nash and, like, stick with him after everything, it, even after getting attacked by him. And it's, like, her influence that makes him feel like he has a purpose and keeps going. And like I said, he's definitely the June Carter Cash to Walking Phoenix's John, uh, uh, Johnny Cash and... Yeah, she she's the MVP to me. Like I, I don't feel like the movie is the same if you don't have that character.
2: Yeah, I, I have co MVPs and and Alicia Nash is one of them. Um, and uh, it kind of goes back to what Terry was saying. Like because Terry, you were saying like why doesn't she become a Professor or do something with her mathematics degree Mm -hmm. and like I feel like in the maybe four-hour miniseries version that Todd was maybe talking about like I feel like the movie could have gone more into that I mean it seems like she has to sacrifice all of her life to care for for John Nash um, you know, she she has to sacrifice her her career. She has to sacrifice her sanity. She she's a mother. She apparently has these jobs where she takes on extra shifts, and she's still you know at the end of the movie in the audience clapping for him. Um, it's sort of disingenuous in a way, so you, you you sort of overlook her as as an MVP. But you know, th- without him being married, I mean, his schizophrenia has to go undetected. I, I, it, it would have to. Um, Or, you know, he would be much worse off than he was. So Alicia Nash, definitely one of the co-MVPs of the movie for me. The other MVP of the movie for me is The Cold War. Because... I think the Cold War really helps you feel the sense of paranoia that you feel in the first hour of the movie that make you emotionally associate with John Nash. Like if this movie took place in like the 80s or 90s, I mean, I think it would be a lot less, cl- it would be a lot more clear that John Nash is maybe a little eccentric and crazy. But the Cold War paranoia mindset really makes you believe that Dr. Rosen might be a spy. I can only think of one other movie that does as effective a job of using the Cold War as a way to make you as a viewer have paranoia and that's Shutter Island. But this is a better movie than Shutter mm-hmm. Island. But both movies do just a great job of using that time period to to mess around with the viewer. So, Cold What War. about lives of others? Well, yeah, I, I guess that's true, but I don't know. That's, I think that's a different era, though, and it's a different yeah, it's kind true. of story, but I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, and Parcher even says at one point, McCarthy's an idiot, but he's not wrong. But that doesn't mean he's wrong. Yeah. Um. Okay, uh, my my MVP is uh, is going to be Charles, uh, Paul Bettany's character, um, and we've talked about him several times. However, I think if Charles wasn't as likable as he is, no one would have the the shock of him of it all being made up wouldn't have mattered as much. But Charles, from the minute you see him, becomes this this instantly likable guy that you best friend that, it's his best friend and to be john nash's best friend is uh as a feat of patience um but uh but yeah charles being being as likable as he is and portrayed as well as he was by paul bettany if it wasn't done as that well uh no one would have cared and um and that has to be believable um, for, for anything in the second half of the movie to have the impact it does. So I'm giving that my MVP.
0: And so that's why I was saying with, like, the highest war performance, like, the guys you mentioned, like Jude Law and Ewan McGregor would not have had that, that aura about them that would make them likable because they're never likable. Like, nobody <laughs> likes watching those actors. <laughs> Even in movies I love that they're in, they, they, like, I, I don't like their characters.
1: Well said. Well said. All right, well, let's get, into, uh, let's get into quote of the day to wrap this up. Um, Zach, why don't you go first? Okay,
2: so my quote doesn't come from the movie. It should have been in the movie, but it is the real note or letter that the real John Nash wrote upon winning the Nobel Prize in economics in 1994. It was not a speech, and it wasn't about the power of love, okay? This is a much better quote. Um, and I actually got this from Roger Ebert's review of the movie. This is John John Nash's quote. He says, "Without his madness, Zarathustra would have would necessarily have been only another of the millions or billions of human individuals who have lived and then been forgotten." And I think that's a that's a great way to describe John Nash because without the schizophrenia and paranoia he wouldn't have had the mathematical genius i mean they are part and parcel of the same thing and the movie i think does maybe better than any movie show how that kind of genius uh also is derived from insanity and there's really it's kind of a fine line between the two of them so i don't know i think it's a cool quote and the movie should have ended with uh, that quote not the power of love
0: okay okay todd quote uh it's a quote uh by john nash and he he says uh early in the movie i imagine you're getting used to miscalculation and i feel like that <laughs> kind of describes the way i feel talking to you guys on this podcast sometimes <laughs> like especially when we were few movies <laughs> like i feel like i i kind of own those conversations you, you guys got to be getting used to that
1: there, there's a mathematical <laughs> equation to how bad your tie is
0: <laughs> he definitely cracked himself up in that line he did he did. He totally did
1: uh oh i have i have several quotes i want to share um so one of them is uh i i wanted to this would have been my quote but i couldn't find it anywhere but it's the it's like the opening the opening monologue that charles gives as he walks in the door about how uh how having a hangover feels the same as uh, dying of thirst. Yep. Crap, crap. I, I just cycle. find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I find that just like super awesome accurate. and set and accurate and informative. So, there you go. Um, and another quote that that if I could ever remember, this was another thing I thought Todd was gonna do in his uh in his trivia. If I could ever remember the order of it, I would quote it all the time. And Han- it's when Hanson asks Nash, "Nash, are you scared?" And he says, "Terrified, mortified, petrified, stupefied by you." And so that's that's a—that's another good one. He, and he says it twice. He does, and I thought I thought you're, you're, it was give give the four responses in in order of what he feels when he's asked if he's he scared. like we're in
0: full Rain Man in that moment the second time because it's like while he's getting ready to go play Go like he just like it's, it's like he's getting ready to watch Jeopardy. That's
2: but that's also when he's starting to turn into Dorothy no Michaels. So, so maybe Dustin Hoffman could have played John Nash.
1: There you go, and and my last quote is a is is a is a great one. Again, it's Charles. And it's when he first arrives, and he said, I arrived last night, right in time for English department cocktails. The cock was mine. The tail belonged to a lovely young thing with a passion for D.H. Lawrence. <laughs>
0: that was a good one.
2: I, it's a great one! I like how, I can't remember the line, but I love when John Nash says to, to, uh, to Charles, aren't, aren't you done reading that book? Or like He, he just assumes he's reading the same D.H. Lawrence book for, you know, the last ten years.
1: Yeah yeah
2: don't you wish that there right. was a movie where it was just john nash's adventures with charles like drunken vegas adventures
0: <laughs> that that would w- be, wouldn't that be sideways yeah. <laughs> low-key that would be pretty sideways <laughs> fear and
1: loathing in princeton <laughs> uh, all right and with that we're gonna bring this uh this podcast to a close thank you so much for uh for listening Uh, We'll be back in a couple weeks with another podcast. And uh, until then, have fun watching movies.
0: Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.